glory, fortune, fame, passion, heartbreak, and success, all on this episode of Behind the Behind the Music. Today, we're going to be in the corner. We're going to be in the spotlight and lose our religions because we are going to talk about R.E.M. Ash, how are you? I am great. How are you? This was ooh, this is an emotional ride for me. This is, I knew this was going to be. <laughs> this is my favorite band of all time. The alternate intro line I was going to use was I was going to do the whole Glory, Fortune, Fame, Passion, Heartbreak. And then I was going to say, tonight we're going to talk about the band with the most integrity in the history of American music. Like, no <laughs> funny joke. Just be like, or the greatest songwriting quartet since the Beatles. Like, there these, you go. These are all my things, but I, I went back and I referenced a song. Sure. Um, so... As has been established, this is my favorite band. I watched this episode when it aired. I could talk about R.A.M. for 12 hours, probably straight. Just do an hour on each album. And maybe doing it as a podcast, Mr. Adam Scott. <laughs> yes. Um, could have invited One me. One of these days he will get in contact with you. Exactly. Could have invited me. Um, so, so we know where I stand on this band. Where do you stand on this band? Uh... I love them, not nearly as much as you, and that's fine. Um, but no, I watching this. I remember watching this when it was on, but then today at work, I just sort of went back through all the albums, and I was like, man, they've got like, like every album is solid. I forgot how many great songs there were, and like the memories that came back with them, and ugh, top notch. Oh yeah, there's this is uh, there's a few foundational musicians and bands for me. But this is really the one. Um, the, the the lyrics, even if they didn't make sense, the the. the I find lyrics no like never make sense, no matter what well, band you're listening to. Really, well, we'll put it this way: REM left, and I think purposefully, Michael Stipe left enough ambiguity in his lyrics. Uh-huh. Um, and never over explained the meaning of them. And maybe in the later years, they talked a little bit more, such that you were really encouraged to interpret and make the musical experience your own. So as a teenager, I remember getting Automatic for the People with the gift certificates that I got at my bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. And Automatic for the People was the first R.E.M. album I bought, I'm pretty sure. And listening to it just cover to cover over and over and over again. And um, just it, it like it absorbed into my heart. And, and I think all, not everybody, but many of my friends, that album yeah. was the album. Like, how did you know about them? Because <sighs> for me, it was the losing my religion video. I remember seeing that on much music. And I will never forget the image of like Stipe with like the feather, like angel wings. And I just remember thinking, this is such a bizarre video. Who are these people? So I remember that video. And I remember seeing the It's the End of the World as We Know It video and, 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 and thinking like, wow, this is odd. This doesn't seem like the same band. And then, which is, like, I don't know if you've ever seen that video, but it's a kid in like a burned out kind of yes. cabin playing with toys. Um, but I had a friend who came to visit me and he brought Out of Time with him on CD and he played it for me and was like, this is the greatest album. And I just wasn't. Like I wasn't old enough, or I mean, not that I wasn't old enough. My kids like REM, but like I just wasn't in the mindset to get into them yet, and so I was like, eh, whatever. Yeah. And then 
I, I want to say it was the video. Yeah, now I remember now. It was the video for Man on the Moon watching on mm-hmm. Much Music where Michael Stipe has that awesome cowboy hat and mm-hmm. they're at that truck stop in the middle of nowhere. That and almost, it's like a sepia. It, wasn't it like a sepia video? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And there was this... The line in the song, here's a truck stop on the way to St. Peter, the whole notion that, you know, this was this way station in between Earth and somewhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. I loved the image of it, and I love the image of all the band members and all the people mouthing along to the song and playing pool. And that song really made me want to own their music. But then then you put on at a time i mean automatic for the people and the whole thing is perfect but what it has is what i would argue is the greatest one-two punch finishing of an album in the history of music and it can never be beaten which is night swimming followed by the river night swimming is such an underrated song nobody knows it unless you're like a huge rem fan it's true because it even in the later years like it, it, put it this way: If I wrote "Night Swimming," I'd play it every night for the rest exactly. of my life. <laughs> and I've seen them twelve times, and it was only on one tour did they play that song. And I, I was lucky enough to see them play it twice on that tour, but it was only, um, it was uh, was it twice? I mean, maybe it was only yeah, maybe two or three times. But the point is, is that it was only on one of the tours that I saw them that I got the chance to see that song. Um, and then "Find the River," I, I had this really interesting. Well, so this person will get a shout out on both podcasts. So there is this woman who's a producer or musical uh, entrepreneur. It's hard for me. I don't know, hundred percent sure. I have to ask her what her what exactly. What she is does. her credentials? Well, but she she's often in music studios producing music. So, but I think okay. she's a musician as well. I just don't know her personally. But she oh, did right. the her, her she goes by the handle M J Maelstrom. I believe her real name is MJ Medina, and she's uh, a musician um, and, I guess, performer as well and producer. And she put out on Instagram in her Instagram story, uh, people, you know, invited people to send her a song, and then she'd send you a song back. And I just went with the first one that came to my mind, and it was Find the River. And I was like, you know what? On any given day, if you ask me what my favorite songs are, uh, there's probably five things that I mean, one of five things will pop up. But one of them's Night Swimming, and one of them's Find the River, and it was a Find mm-hmm. the River day. So I sent it to her, and then she sent me an awesome song back, and then I sent her a Tragically Hip song back, but I haven't heard back yet at the point of this recording. She's she's just delving into the Tragically Hip. Just yeah, like, may, that maybe that's it. Maybe she fell down the the, the rabbit hole. I don't know, uh, but yeah. it's not like it's like an immediate thing. I, I want you know, if she sends me a song back, she's got to soak it up and think about it and, 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 yeah. and come up with a good choice because her first choice was amazing in any event so to me automatic for the people again it is so attached to me that when you ask me what my favorite songs are two of the songs i'm going to come up with are from automatic for the people from that one yeah um and uh so okay so do you have an rem so you said losing my religion the video i mean mm-hmm. i don't know how much we've talked about music videos i don't know how much of the bands we've talked about but R.E.M., I think, I would argue, is one of the great music video bands. Definitely. Uh, They've got, yeah, they've got such, like, each one is so different, and it's a story within itself. And like you said, there's so much ambiguity with the lyrics. You're like, all right, (laughs) does this video have anything to do with this song? Maybe not. I don't know. But, yeah, they're just such an interesting band. Even to, like, watch live, though, they're just such an interesting band. Oh, yeah, there's this great moment where they talk about how Michael Stipe isn't your typical 
you know, rock star front man and they yeah. compare him immediately to Mick Jagger and yeah. Bono. And I would say if there is if there are any rock star, if there's anyone who he is in the same category as, it is those guys, even though he's a wildly different person. But having seen him perform, I don't think there are other front men who control the stage the way he does that aren't yeah. at the Mick Jagger Bono level. Yeah. Um, in I'm fact, did you ever see them live? I have, yeah. Oh, wow. When, uh, did, you, when did you see them? Oh, God. Probably 2002, probably. Okay, so that was Ma- like... Massey Hall in Toronto. What? They yeah. played Massey Hall? Yeah. Are you kidding and I, me? I didn't actually know that they were playing, but my best friend is a huge REM fan. Like, she, she, you and her would get along so well. I will oh introduce goodness. you guys on Twitter. Please, um, yes. And she was like, please, will you come see REM? No one will go with me. And I was like, yeah, okay. I'm no like, I don't know all the you. songs, but like, I'll go. And it was, they were unreal. You know what I mean? Unreal. Amazing. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, yeah, they, they, they did, they would do, they would pop up in these small venues in the later years, but I definitely never got a chance to see them in a, in a, in a small place. Um, yeah. For our listeners, Massey Hall is not a massive venue. No, I, it, I it's is maybe it, a couple thousand i'm trying i'm actually looking up to see when they would have played our when they would have played massey hall or what the I'm set sure. list was for that night oh, i'm trying i i knew most of the hit i monster played a, a huge role in it the that's, monster album oh wow that's really and, cool and like i said i know my friend was on like she's in like the fan club kind of thing so i think it was like a pop-up and she was just like, please go with me. Because it was like spur of the moment. And normally you buy tickets like months and months in advance. And I remember being like, please. Like, it's like, like one two of those, weeks away like rehearsal type shows that bands would do. Yeah. The Stones it, it, would do those in Toronto also. Yeah. At um, the warehouse. Do you remember that place down by the lake? No. Like, on, on, I saw most of my shows in Montreal. Oh, fair enough then. Um, okay. All right. So back to back to the, the... Okay. So let's get into the story here. So... It, I, this episode is great, and I realize I'm biased, but one of the things that it is better that it makes it great is at every era, they do a beautiful job pulling out songs from the R.A.M. catalog. Now, you understand how this television stuff works more than me, but presumably they got to pay for the rights for each one of these songs when they do one of these. Um, It's a bit of a gray area because they're already VH1, so they already play videos. Oh, interesting. So I'm not exactly sure how that would work. I'm I'm assuming the bands and the artists would be compensated in some way because they're making a documentary about them, but couldn't tell you the ins and outs of it. Okay. Well, anyways, the music... So, first of all, it, it explodes onto the screen this episode with a live shot of the band playing What's the Frequency, Kenneth, on the Monster huh. Tour, which is this storied moment of the tour. And, and also, everyone should know, this episode was probably taped in 1998 or so, so... There's a whole half of R.E.M.'s career that it does not talk about that we won't have a chance to necessarily go into. But Monster is just this legendary moment because R.E.M. had said they weren't going to tour again, and then they toured, and then they did this massive, epic, incredible tour that was filled with illness and all those illness and accidents. And the fact that they chose to start with this raucous version of What's the Frequency, Kenneth, made me think, wow, whoever... There's a lot of famous R.E.M. songs, but whoever's making this documentary is gets it and wants to make a statement here with this so that was cool 
they talk a lot about how they built their reputation on the road, which I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about because all they've heard was shiny, happy people and losing my religion. Mm-hmm. And they talked a lot about how, when I, yeah, I, I wasn't being tongue in cheek when I talked about their integrity. REM always maintained their creative control over their product. They, at mm-hmm. no, um, we've listened to a lot of these teen idol type guys, you know, these, the, the, we've watched the behind the music of the David Cassidy's yeah. <laughs> and, R.E.M., you know, I don't know whether they're on principle or just they weren't going to do it otherwise, but they really stuck with that. And then they have some really cool supporting interviews in this, but the one that was most exciting for me to see was this guy named Burtis Downs. Did you catch him, his appearances? Mm-hmm. So Burtis Downs is described as the fifth member of REM in some respects and you see that when he talks he talks about we he's been their attorney since they first started yeah and I have a good Burtis down story but I'll tell I'll save that for the end but to me he is integral to the story of REM that he was he was the management he was the person who who's you know without an ego as far as I can tell without stealing their money or doing any of the crazy things we've seen happen to other artists kind of like helped you know this band navigate and I love that he was part of this story even if he was Mm -hmm. mostly commenting and even then he wasn't talking about himself he was just he's like I'm a fan of the band I'm the biggest fan and I'm you know (laughs) so that was no industry like crap with him there's okay so they they bring you back to the the legendary beginnings of R.E.M. which begins in the Wuck Street record store when Michael Stipe is buying the records that Pete Buck wished he could have for himself I just like how he beat him to all the record. I don't know. I just thought it was a funny image in my head. Yeah, I mean, and and also like, what a cool way to pick the dude that you want to write songs with, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And Michael Stuff, you know, tries to convince Peter Buck, oh, let's, let's start a band. And Peter Buck says, I don't want to be in a band. Guys and bands are jerks. He said, <laughs> yeah. No, we we won't be jerks. And I'm like, You're right. You won't be jerks. You guys are amazing. <laughs> like you kept. I was. I'm like cheering along. I'm like, listen to him, Peter. <laughs> um, and Peter, I, I, I don't know how much Peter Buck. I've watched a lot of Peter Buck interviews in my lifetime. He's kind of like I think he's the oldest in the band, and he's like the the wise man character. He's always the one making the proclamations about rock and roll and what is or isn't <laughs> rock and roll. And I just love that from the beginning. He's like, we're not going to be this kind of band. <laughs> I'm not joining a band. Oh, bless. Um, and then. Uh, they hook up with the Copelands. So yep. the Copelands, now this is a very important family, right? This is Ian, the manager, Miles, the the guy in charge of IRS, and I believe the third brother is someone of great importance. Do you know? This is a little pop quiz. Uh, I know the last name, but I'll, no. Okay, not off so, top of my head. So the last one is a drummer for another famous band, I believe. Uh... Nothing? No. The people at home. Um, Let me me make sure before I make this proclamation that this is absolutely true. Um, But I'm I'm 90% sure this is true as I Wikipedia this. Yes. He is the Stuart Copeland, the drummer from the police, is the younger brother of Miles and Ian, I believe. And so talk about an amazing family. One of them founds IRS Records, who discovers R.E.M. The other turns out to be, you know, key in that, but also manages um, 
manages the bangles, which is also part of the story that yes. that he gets his brother to sign the bangles. Uh, this, this, gets ba- his this girl band from to, LA to sign REM on the condition that he will manage the bangles. Which, by the yeah. way, I don't. Do you ever listen to the bangles? Oh my gosh, yes! I, I love the bangles. I love. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. Let's I love. And and I don't think people realize how punk rock the bangles really were. They had they had some punk rock in them. So. I'm. Isn't there's a behind the music on the bangles? There is. I don't know when that one appears, but I remember that one vividly. I love that I, one. I know I watched that one like recently when I was on my binge, like a year ago, or whatever it was. So so they get on board with IRS through the Copeland brothers, mm-hmm. and then comes this. I bolded this in my notes. This great line, which is, "We never wanted to be in debt, and we wanted to be in total control." And then also Michael Stipe talks about how they didn't want to be like Rod Stewart, but they mostly, <laughs> mostly. I did chuckle at that. <laughs> they mostly, and and as far as I know, that is what they did at every step of their career. And yep. that it's just rare that you hear the story of the band that does that. And I think that the songs and the performances are part of why they were able to do that and the time that they were in, right? Like, mm-hmm. like their songs were so ubiquitous at a certain point. Um, anyways, so they didn't want to be like Rod Stewart. So then Murmur comes out. Now, we were both probably too young to know Murmur when it came out. Like, yeah. I believe it came out the same year or around the same year as Thriller. Oh, really? And I think Rolling Stone outranked uh, thriller with Murmur as like album of the year. Ooh, controversial. Yeah, uh, uh, Rolling Stone, Mur- Murmur, Thriller. I'm like, I should, I know these things, but there we, um, I, I know these. Murmur things. came out in '83. Murmur when came out in Thriller, and I want to say that in the year that they both came out, there was this like Murmur was ranked ahead of Thriller in in Rolling Stones magazine's like list of albums of the year or something like that. Oh. Because that would be the kind of edgy thing they would do, right? Like, you know, oh, look <laughs> at this cool indie band, whatever. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a that over time, I feel like, has become such an important um, album to bands. Although I would say it's not my favorite R.E.M. album. I think it's, it's a good R.E.M. Yeah, but Radio for Europe is an amazing song. It is. It is. It is. And it beat Michael Bolton, an American bandstand. Another factoid we learned from this. I'm not surprised. (laughs) So they start getting this indie cred, and then they travel off. They they make two albums, and then they're like, let's make an album in England (laughs) in the winter. Yeah, good choice, guys. And the the London era is this, the story of making Fables of the Reconstruction, which is an awesome album. And they describe this lonely period in London in, I don't know, January or February. Now, you're, you're our official, you know, our UK pillar of the, mm-hmm. of the program. Would you make an album in London in the winter? No. In the 80s? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I don't know. In the 80s, I think London probably had a better vibe than it does now. But either way, the weather would be trash. <laughs> like it's it's not going to be sunny and warm. It's going to be cold and raining. So they they come out with tables, and this was another great moment in the episode. Great use of music. They they bring you into the London part, 
and they start playing Feeling Gravity's Pull, which is mm-hmm. this is creepy, moody guitar work. And I'm like, oh, it's like R.E.M. wrote the soundtrack of their Behind the Music as their <laughs> career was happening. Like, we're going to do Rick Springfield. We're doing this a little bit out of order, but we did. We did, I was at Watch Rick Springfield, and most of his songs were just Jesse's Girl at different tempos, and they just yeah, played those throughout I, the episode. The only one I knew. <laughs> And 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 it, it's, but REM's soundtrack just evokes so much, and and all those songs are theirs, and they all sound quite different. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they do fables, they do document, um, which they didn't spend a lot of time on document, but that was the one that got them teed up for the mega, the first of their two mega Warner Brothers contracts. Mm-hmm. And I love. There's a great moment where the Copeland uh, brothers talk about how they, knowing REM was going to leave, and knowing that. Warner Brothers was going to double whatever other offer they got. They gave them one last big offer so that they could get the most money possible out of Warner Brothers. Yeah, well, go for it. And and then they and then they make Green. Um, and do you is Green an album that you spent a lot of time listening to? I can't say no, no. Uh, I think it was one of those ones that sort of fell by the wayside for me not because it's bad i just it's not something that i ever thought of in connection with rem so green is is huge <laughs> is hugely important number one it's the one where they went on their first world world tour yeah. so there's actually a lot of great bootlegs of that or it's the same bootleg that circulates over and over and over again but there are there's some great recordings of that tour that i remember my best friend josh he got a like, do you remember CD stores used to sell bootlegs? Like, you could buy like for an obscene amount of money a sound. Yes, and there he, was an awesome place in Toronto downtown that I used to drag my dad to all the time. Yeah, there was one in Montreal, and Josh got this REM bootleg called Perfect Circle, and on it was a show from the Green Tour that was freaking magnificent. It's since probably the most bootleg version of their concert because I, I would you'd find other bootlegs and they would just be the same concert and green is hugely important I think because it transitions their sort of more punk rockery kind of way with the beginnings of the mandolins you start hearing on that album you start hearing in songs like hair shirt and you are the everything the mandolin orange crush is on there as well isn't yeah it? yeah I and mean, you still yeah. have these huge rock songs too exactly orange crush turn you inside out pop song 89 these are it's like this this is almost schizophrenic album but it's the bridge between the IRS era and then what's about to come uh, and from here they go on now here the episode kind of after the Warner contract now that it almost feels like the episode starts speeding up and start hitting as many because th- I don't think anything truly terrible happened to R.E.M. like in the you know we we're talking about our scale like of Rick Allen losing his arm mm-hmm. to I don't remember what our zero was but our our you know our scale of terrible things like all right but when you add up all these interesting things they had a bunch of challenges so i'm going to go down the challenges because that's at the point in the episode here so number one was the issue of michael stipe's sexuality and that comes up and with people you know putting out rumors about him and then when they stopped touring after the green tour there were rumors that both either that they were on drugs or that he had contracted HIV and there was all this pressure for him to talk about either his sexuality or his health and all of those things. And And I loved his response. Yeah. 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 Uh, Please go forth with the response. 
uh, it was just like I thought people, you know, were aware because I'm up on stage wearing like eyeliner and dresses in the like early '80s, and I was just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So on his sexuality, he said, I never felt like I should comment on it, a because I didn't want to, uh, you know, I didn't want to feel uh, like I I was um, boxed in, boxed in, or anything like that. Um, or, but you know, I just figured anyone who knew me kind of knew my sexuality. So yeah. right, how is anyone's business? But on the on the sickness part, which comes, I guess, maybe a little bit later. I thought Peter Buck's answer on that was a really beautiful and thoughtful answer. In that they did not want to answer because and put any denials out because they knew people who were HIV positive and they didn't want to stigmatize those people yeah because we're still talking like early 80s or late 80s we're talking late 80s early 90s i mean we're we're talking i mean we're talking around the time of freddie mercury's death which Mm -hmm. i i use that as a that's a cultural moment for me because it was i was 10 or 11 years old when he died and that's also around when wayne's world came out and so i became aware of the band queen and then there was that huge concert at wembley stadium um the tribute to freddie mercury which was how i learned about hiv i mean talk about rock concerts you know having an influence like that was the gateway for me understanding about hiv and and learning about what you know is not true and true about it um, mm-hmm. in terms of the rumors and the stigmas and things like that and so I think it was kind of brave REM you know instead of instead of kind of covering their own asses and, and trying to explain things for themselves they decided to not engage so as not to uh, act as if something was bad or, 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 or you know that their denial was somehow proving that this was negative I thought that was a gutsy move for them integrity folks. integrity there you go there you go and sticking with so many of their um so many of their choices as a band um other things that go on during this period um so yeah they get off the road they decide not to tour which ultimately as i heard as they as i've heard many times they were just tired they they had toured non-stop since 1983 and they were like yeah i'm just gonna make records they got this big record contract. <laughs> i don't blame them and then they go, and, and Peter, once again, making his declarations, like, no more electric guitar. I'm going to do mandolin. <laughs> okay, let's do mandolin. And there you go. And and Mike Mills has a really interesting line there where he talks about how they would, as long as they didn't have any objections, they would kind of go along with it. And from that comes Losing My Religion, which yeah. you know is, I've heard described as a mandolin-driven song that came out in the grunge era and didn't have a chorus yet was a massive <laughs> massive massive hit all right um and then they also talked about shiny happy people which i guess those are two big Came singles years ago like years before that didn't it shiny happy people yeah no same, out, like no it's the same it's the second single from or i don't know if it's the oh, second it's, single but it's the it's one of the singles from out of time oh right okay i'm just getting my albums confused okay. so that comes out without a time but that's an album that's stacked with great REM songs. That's uh, Radio Song and Low and Belong and all of those. And and that was a big hit. But you know what I love about Shiny Happy People that is then recreated later in the Shiny <gasps> Fur- Furry Monsters is the yeah. appearance of Kate Pearson from B-52s, who's also from Atlanta or from the Georgia area, Athens from, area. Sorry. Yeah. Love that. Um anyways so then all right then okay so 
Automatic for the People, which we talked about a lot, named after a sign from their favorite barbecue place. Mm-hmm. And let's zero in on Everybody Hurts. <sighs> Good tune. Yeah. To, to me, like, so that was grunge era, or at least around the time of grunge era. And yeah. Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder, and, and that was a much well much less well-adjusted Eddie Vedder, and obviously we know what happened to Kurt Cobain, but also there was this very dark, grungy, you know, I don't want to say glorification of being depressed, but maybe maybe there was a glorification of being depressed. And I remember, because that was the cool music and being into that music, kind of embracing that but never being comfortable with it, and I remember seeing Michael Stipe perform... Everybody Hurts. I might be mixing up years and all of this, but maybe not. But I remember him performing Everybody Hurts, and they showed a clip from it in this episode where he's got the hat on and the little beard and his chin. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that song performed and being like, oh, I finally get this song now. I get it. And kind of not snapping out of my love of the depressing music, but realizing that I could like that music for what it is, but not absorb it as an actual way of feeling. Mm-mm. Yeah. I don't think I ever felt that way. I, I don't... Yeah. I know I know what you mean, though. Put I it this way. I was a poser. Like I, I, I was a poser because I don't <laughs> think I ever really felt that way either. But Everybody Hurts made me realize I could like cool music and not pose in that way. How about that? Right. Okay. Okay. And it's a hugely powerful song. So they, of course, use So is the, the video, though. Oh, yeah. Like, where he's just walking in still traffic? Yeah, if you ask me what I think the best music videos of all time is, I will often say that as the answer. Nice. I will, I will forego Thriller, once again, R.E.M. beating Michael Jackson. <laughs> MJ's just slipping down the list. Yeah. Um, and so, anyway, so they, they then use that as a segue, because uh, <clears throat> Everybody Hurts was a plea against suicide. And then they talk about the deaths of some very important people in their lives. They talk about the death of River Phoenix, and then they talk about the death of Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Who were very close to the band. And I I wonder if because this this Behind the Music was made in 98 or 97 or whatever that was, how close it was to the death of Kurt Cobain and the power of grunge, I wonder if that's why that element of the story is bigger. Like, if you were doing the documentary on R.E.M. now, would mm-hmm. would they tease out his relationship with Kurt Cobain, his friendship with Kurt Cobain, as much? Well, maybe I guess they would. Yeah. It's pretty... I guess I it's think they would. Because, I mean, he's still... Kurt Cobain is still Kurt Cobain in 2018, as he was in 1994. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know anybody of any age that doesn't know who Kurt Cobain is and knows the impact. Whether you liked that band or liked him, you yeah. still know what he brought about. So, For me, when they became friends and people knew about them being friends before Kurt Cobain died, but then after as well, as a huge R.E.M. fan, I suddenly got get, I suddenly started getting way more respect from all of the like edgier grunge kids. Because they were like, yeah, they, there was all this like... All these, you know, lore of like, yeah, Kurt Cobain and Michael Stipe, they were going to collaborate on an album. Kurt Cobain was going to go in a new direction inspired by R.E.M. I don't know if any of that stuff is ever true. But the fact that R.E.M. was such an important band to Nirvana 
gave a lot of people um, a lot of people introduced a lot of people to REM that wouldn't have necessarily thought that they were mm-hmm. great, which is so interesting because a guy like Kurt Cobain probably loved REM, you know. Anyway, yeah, um, So then they make Monster. Mm-hmm. I remember waiting. Monster was the first album of theirs that I waited to be released. Like I'd already, I was a fan, but it hadn't come out yet. So when it came out, I was on vacation. I was I was visiting Philadelphia on Passover, and I went into an Fye. Remember those? Oh yeah, <laughs> Warrior Entertainment in Philadelphia, and, and I, I want to say in it might have even been in the Willow Grove Mall, which is often the setting in the Goldbergs where. Where mm. Gimbel's is in the Goldbergs, and where they buy Adam the Z Cavaricci's pants in the second episode, <laughs> I think, of the show. Yeah. And I think I was in the Willow Grove Mall, and I went to the Fye, and I bought that album and on honestly, cassette or CD? CD, CD. Ooh, uh, gosh! I, you know, it was it was that my parents never let me buy cassettes. Because they thought cassettes were not good quality, so they would have records or nothing, and they would make cassettes of their records to like bring in the car for car trips. But then when CDs came out, like they thought that was a worthy investment. And considering I still have the thousands of CDs I've purchased since, <laughs> I, I have that copy of Monster. I'm sure in my stuff right now. Oh my goodness! Cool. Uh, you had cool parents. Uh, something. I mean, they're over time they've proven to be very cool, but I don't know if at the time. And what's the frequency, Kenneth? That, that blew my mind so much because, again, REM reinvents themselves. And I watched that video, and I actually had to rewatch and rewatch the video because I'm like, are there different guys in the band now? What happened? And there was no way to check on the internet, right? So I'm like, Is that, what happened to Mike Mills's hair? What's that crazy suit he's wearing? Oh, God such a great record and then the tour and this is the tour i think we've talked about this before where i love this band so much i i just assumed they were never going to come to montreal and i was never going to get to see them and then it was announced that they were going to play the montreal forum and it turned out it was going to be the day before one of our exams and i remember it was me my buddy josh david brownstein alana austin and naomi wall got together and studied for our wait for our wait for this Talmud test because we were in a Jewish day school <laughs> and we studied and then we all went to the show together and that was and to this day will still be the greatest concert experience of my life because there's no way to match the first time the, the first anticipation time, yeah. and then a perfect set list a perfect set list it was just incredible were you close uh, we were sort of like midway in the side stands. Like, I, I mean, do. I mean, I don't know if we were far, but like we weren't far. Like you could, you could see them walking around. I mean, and the set for that show was amazing. They, they had, they had giant screens that came up and down at different times. They had lights and strobe lights and neon colors at different points. I want to say they even threw frisbees into the audience during it's the end of the world as we know it. Like all sorts of man did, did everything. Um, did you, no, did you did you see them at the beginning or the end or the of this tour? So this tour, which um, was renamed Aneurysm '95 after yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bill Berry's Aneurysm in Lausanne, Switzerland. Wow. We saw them after the Aneurysm, and what is so amazing about that is that a I'm pretty sure they kept the same date of the show. So 
when they talk about how they got back on the road after six weeks and then they uh-huh. made up other dates later, I don't think they changed a lot of the tour because they were they were uh, they showed up when they were supposed to. The band Luscious Jackson opened for them, by the way. I don't know if you remember those guys. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, they did. It, so one of the things they did was they had this tour program, and I still have my tour program to this day. It's like big, those big glossy programs. It's huge too. It's I want to say it's like twelve by twelve or something like that. And in it, they added these inserts of x-rays of Bill Berry's head like from the aneurysm surgery (laughs) with the tour dates uh, printed on them and so I still have to this day and I I loved it so much that I actually had it like color photocopied onto a shirt and for a while I wore this REM shirt that was that had my own homemade REM shirt that had the aneurysm picture like steam pressed into the back that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. The, so they did that. I thought that was so cool. I still have it to this day. And they crushed it. They were amazing. Um, and the other things happened on that tour, which I didn't hear about until many years later, like Michael Stipe having a hernia and Mike Mills yeah. having an intestinal surgery. And, and then there's this great moment where they talk about how Michael Stipe's sitting in the hospital in Prague for this show that had been rescheduled twice and he has a hernia and he has the choice between playing for the playing in pain or having surgery and not being and able some to kids walk up to him yeah they? yeah <laughs> and they say are you gonna play and he just says yes and i'm like yes because you're, <laughs> you're the greatest because you're the greatest this is gonna be like this will either be like the best episode of this show or the worst because people are like <laughs> oh my god i like it when they don't like the band a lot more <laughs> Don't worry, we'll get to that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so then, um, then there's this interesting moment that I forgot was in the episode, but they talk about how Jefferson Holt, their band, their manager, who was kind of like the, I don't know if he was the business partner of Burtis Downs, but they were always both credited in the on the album sleeves together at the same place, Burtis Downs and Jefferson Holt for management, and Jefferson Holt was fired under this situation that has never been spoken about by the band because of an NDAA, I guess. Uh, NDA, yeah, NDA, non-disclosure agreement? Uh, yes. Yeah, NDA. And NDA. Um, uh, but he was allegedly fired for sexual harassment of an REM staff member. And I, I want to believe this is them being either ahead of their time or in sync with their times about not tolerating that in their organization. Yep. I would like to think they were ahead of their time. I think they were. Yeah. So he's out, but then the big, the big, the big moment happens. The big change in REM, and again, it happens right before this behind the music is is happening. So this is, I was surprised. This is like in the last six minutes of the episode. <laughs> they had to throw it in at the last minute. That's why. Maybe you never know, right? Uh, because now when you look at the arc of REM's career, when they when they divide it up, the big moment, the big difficult moment is nothing to do with, you know, sexuality or touring. Like those things are all part of the story or, or their time when they were in London and things, it was cold. But it's that in 1997, I think it's 1997, Bill Berry walks in and tells the band he's leaving right before they're about to record a new album. And he goes off to live as like a farmer and I want to say one of the Carolinas. Yeah. 
just just walked in and was like i'm done we, but he, he was valid though he was like i just i've been touring for like 20 years or whatever the hell it would have been at this point and he was just like i just don't want to tour anymore i don't want to do this and i was like i gotta respect that though you know and on top of that he tells them hey if you want the band to if you're gonna break up the band i'll stay in i'll go to therapy yeah. and i'll stay in I'm like, oh, how cool could you possibly be? You're this cool, Bill Barry. And he leaves, and then Up is made. The next album is made, and he says, he's so gracious in the interview, and he talks about it. He goes, oh, I left, and then they made their best album. And I think Up is a great album. Do you know that it album very a, well? I do, and no one knows it. Again, it's one of those things that like nobody knows unless you are like into R.E.M. or into music in general. Like, yeah. It was, people know automatic for the people and that's about it i think up is is not only is it a beautiful dark moody album but they start sprinkling in all this electronic stuff that i feel like was a forerunner for the yeah which was, i'm not normally a fan of but they do it well oh yeah beautiful 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 album and it doesn't have a lot of drums there's only a few songs that have traditional drums in it and mm-hmm. I believe I want to say the drummer on that album is Barrett Martin, who had played in Mad Season um, with Lane Staley. I think it's something like that. I was going to ask you if you knew who the drummer was on the I, album, I, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure on the tour though it was Joey Waroniker, um, who was Beck's drummer up until that point. All right, okay. He's this left-handed drummer. He, kind of, if you look at some of the old Beck videos, um, mm-hmm. uh, he, he he had a very significant he got a very specific look and so or style but he he was very he was very good and then they and and so barrett martin does this i think very delicate moody drumming he kind of does what he's supposed to do for the album and i think he does a great job um and then yeah he's the drummer on up and i just i just double checked it and and then they bring on Joey Waroniker on the tour, and I saw the tour in Toronto. My parents, who I'd always wanted them to see R.E.M., they loved R.E.M., my sisters loved R.E.M., we flew as a family for Toronto. It was the first time we ever went to Toronto uh, on vacation, 1999, to the Molson Amphitheater. Ooh, it's a great venue. <laughs> and we had, I don't know how my dad did this, but again, this is before the days of StubHub and jacking up all the prices. You know, you just found someone, you know, you just had a guy. Yeah. And, and my dad got us, I want to say we were 15th row in the center. Oh. And earlier that day we were in a restaurant and like Fall On Me came on the radio and it was like a sign that everything was going to be good. And truthfully, that was as close to as good to the monster show as, as I ever saw them. And part of it was a, the stage setup for that show was unbelievable. They had all these crazy neon sign. It looks sort of like this futuristic Hong Kong kind of look that downtown, but the set list was great. And their energy was almost like they were sort of proving that they could still crush it on stage, even if they weren't the same original band and they were amazing 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 concert so the up tour is i hope when they do a reissue of up we get a good live up album release with that yeah because they're they're good at doing that automatic for the people's got a lovely um like they even have demos and stuff on there don't they oh yeah or am i thinking of the wrong one no no, you're you're absolutely right all of their all all of their reissues are like among the best reissues that any band does yeah, like actually worth rebuying for. Right, you get the album remastered, which for them makes a big difference because most of their albums came out before the loudness wars of the '90s, so they benefit from the upgraded sound. 
mm-hmm. and then either you get like two full albums of demos which is on a couple of them or you get like these great live shows from that just gives you a picture of the band in its different era it's really cool yeah they were a band that I wish would release more of their live music like I don't want to yeah don't, there's quite a few like YouTube concerts and stuff up maybe I don't know that, that's maybe, true that's true maybe and they're I, just like the fans are doing it for us we're that, that, that's true and they have a few really good live DVD releases mm-hmm. uh, I, I highly recommend tour film from Green and Road Movie from Monster I've seen Road yeah I've seen Road Movie Road Movie's so cool and then <laughs> and then Perfect Square from from that tour that you saw the 2002-2003 era that's a really yeah. good one it's a really really good one I will have to look that so okay sorry i'm like deep into all right so in some ways i want to end the rem story here not just because of time but because i feel like we have to respect the behind the music narrative in the sense that this is really the halfway point because they would eventually break up at at the Mm -hmm. 31 year mark of being a band and essentially for the same reason that bill burry left the band they were like we're not gonna we're not we don't want to do this anymore so we'd rather do that than be a greatest hits act yeah. And I'm like, oh, I respect you and your integrity, but come on. But please come back. <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, on the other hand, they always did it on their terms, so they continued to. Okay. Yep. Yep, yep. Reflections on the band. Do you have an MVP band member? I realize this is like as evil a question as you could ask, but do you have an MVP band member? Hmm. Um... I, I was always drawn to Mills and I don't know why and even in this like he just seems such a sweetly honest like they all seem really sweet and really honest I don't know he just always struck me as like I don't know he just stood out to me for some reason and, yeah so I'm gonna I, I'm gonna agree with you now that being said I recognize that it's the, you know the power of the four of them and then I think the three by the way I think the trio made a bunch of very good albums um, oh, yeah. people kind of uh, all are too swift to dispute some of that, but I, I think that the three did great. But I agree with you on on Mills because Mills, to me, Mills is the thing that no other band has. I mean, no other band has Michael Stipe, no other band has Peter Buck, no other band has Bill Berry, but Mills's backup vocals in particular and the way mm. he sang those counter melodies and songs like "Fall on Me," where he's almost like he's singing a part that you want to sing along to that isn't the main line of the song it's just I have my kids we'll put on Find the River or Fall on Me in the car and I'll be like you have to listen to these backup vocals they're like what are backup vocals I'm like no you gotta understand (laughs) Mike Mills backup vocals it's amazing and um, so yeah that's that's a big moment so let me tell you my Bird is Down story yes I would like to know if it's like are you being sued for stalking or what, what no 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 no. this was like one of those rock and roll dreams come true moments oh okay my sister lily and i went to see rem at the patriot center in uh virginia and pete yorn was opening and in between pete and we had pretty good seats because i'd gotten them through the fan club and they were they were looking at the side of the stage but they were fairly close mm-hmm. and while the while they were in the change between the opening act and the main band I see a guy who looks just like the dude in the in the documentary wearing a baseball hat and I'm like and I reach over and I go Burtis. I see him walk by. 
Burtis Downs, are you Burtis Downs? But I, I called him over and I shook his hand and I said, I said, Burtis, I, I don't want to ask you for anything. I just want you to know I've been a fan of this band forever. And I know how much your role in the band has been so important to the success and, and keeping the band that we love existing. And I just, I want to say thank you from a fan to you. And he said, oh, thank you. And then we chatted about the tour a little bit and we mm-hmm. shook hands and he walks away. So that's really cool. So as the show continues, he's standing and watching the show by the side of the stage near where our seats are. We're up in the stands. Mm-hmm. And during the encore, I, uh, throughout the show, I kind of look over to him and I kind of look, keeping an eye on him and like waving, you know, I don't know if he sees us or not. And right during the last second, to last song of the encore, he runs up into the stands and he takes two backstage passes and he stuffs them into my pocket and said, really love it if you and your sister would come hang out after the show. What? Yep. And we got two backstage passes and we hung around and we got to walk back with all the people that had access to the meet and greet and we got to meet all the guys in R.E.M. plus all of the guys who were the in the in this, the side musicians who had been with them at that point for a long time, particularly uh-huh. Scott McCoy, got to meet him and and uh, got to meet all the band members. And um, Michael Stipe, was, they were all wonderful. And Michael Stipe in particular was very sweet to us. And my, I, my sister would kill me if I don't say this on the episode, but he told us we both had really nice teeth. And... <laughs> We're, we, that is a compliment anyone would take. And we're walking out after the show, uh, after the meet and greet. And I guess he was like there ahead of us, like by a few feet, walking with his, um, his assistant or whoever was bringing him to his next, you know, thing, his bus or something like that. And Lily, my sister, she just couldn't control herself. She goes, nice teeth. He told us we had nice teeth. <laughs> and so we were like, we were kind of paranoid that he'd heard that i'm pretty sure he didn't hear that uh but that was you know that's that's among the greatest rock and roll moments of my life and it was thanks to mr burtis downs and so it was that would be one of the greatest moments of anybody's life it was it was very cool it was very cool and see now can i just say this just proves being a true fan gets you places like that brought that was trying to get like backstage passes from this from him doesn't work like people see through this it's like the genuine fan right and, and, see it. And, and i get very nervous about meeting famous artists people that i really like at this point because i i just I don't want to have it go wrong or bad or whatever so yeah, now yeah. I, I i do try to take like that burtis downs approach if i meet someone that i really respect and just be like i just i love your work here's why i love it thank you yeah you know, yeah in and out if they want to chit chat with me they can but you know, respect it. <laughs> exactly. It's up to them. We not, you know, they, they, there's a lot of people that want to see them. They're probably busy. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so anyways, so yeah, that's, that's my big story. I guess I, I I'm still trying to process it. I'm like, it's, <laughs> we were emotional for two days. So we had a bunch of, my sister was visiting me her for her first time in Washington, DC. And so I planned this like just super fun, weekend of stuff or week of stuff I guess it was during the week that we were doing this and I was in grad school at the time and so we had tickets to Bela Fleck the next night we had gone to see Kevin Pollack the comedian we had gone to see oh, him yeah. perform and and so we were doing a bunch of things but when we went to see Bela Fleck we were just in like a dream state because we were still emotional from the night before <laughs> like, like alright yeah it's yeah. a banjo and Future Man's got his little guitar drum but it was it kind of washed over us because we were still floating in that 
Okay. Now this is going to be tough. It's this is going to pain us. But we've got to oh. do the Rockstar Anatomy countdown. So, I, okay, I don't even know what you choose here, but go on. <laughs> so at, so at this point Shania Twain's midriff has just crushed, destroyed Lionel Richie's running mustache. Running away with everything. In the Twitter poll. Destroyed. It was like 82% to... <laughs> and I didn't even vote for my own one. No, and I didn't vote for mine either. And just people... I mean, we had people tweeting at us who we did not know. They were just like, Shania yeah. all the way. I'm like, okay. Exactly. But this time, I'm going to pit Shania Twain's midriff against Michael Stipe's bald head. I knew that was coming. <laughs> And I'm going to put it to you to make this difficult choice. You always put it to me. Um, okay. I mean, I'll weigh in, but you got to go first. Well, I mean, Stipe had hair at the beginning of R.E.M. And he dyed it different colors and stuff like that. So, like, he's not really making a statement. No, I'm still going with Shania. Yeah. Stipe, like... Oh, I have to tell you, I was so close to saying Michael Stipe's bald head. But then when you made the point about the fact that he had hair... I was like, oh, you're right. This it can't it can't hold the power that her midriff no. holds. No, man. Oh my goodness! I I was like coming in prepared to do another showdown, but nope, you've convinced me. Yeah. Shania's midriff continues. Good luck, Michael. <laughs> Sorry, we're gonna Michael. have to retire her soon. I'm not gonna lie to you. Well, no, it's it's it's. I've been watching a lot of wrestling um, uh, YouTube videos, not of like actual matches, but of people talking about things with wrestling. It like. This is like a Hulk Hogan situation. Like yeah. someone earning, like the ultimate warrior of body parts is going to ha- I tell you this, it's definitely not going to be whatever Rick Springfield has going for him. Although Let he, had, he, had, he had some belly shirts happening in that, in those videos. <laughs> so between the two midriffs, I can just say in advance, Shania is going to win. Well, I don't know. It could be a fancy <laughs> midriff. Springfield's rocking. I mean, it was a good one. He didn't have a bad one, but it was just like just between the two, I, you know, anyways. All right, so. <laughs> um, uh, where, uh, sorry, do you have any shout-outs to people or, or things coming up that you want to plug? Um, not at the minute, no. Okay. I love that I have zero friends. <laughs> it's like Lons. you and Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Lons? I don't know Lons, but you can shout-out to Lons. Lons. Yeah, sure. Lons, our gold nerds correspondent in Los Angeles. <laughs> there you go. Has nothing to do with R.E.M., but, you know, no, I, no, love I know. her. But I know that, you know, I've heard her on your other podcast, so, you know. Yeah. Um, and where can people uh, follow you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, comedy underscore girl. And on Instagram, I'm Improvinator. Cool. Oh, uh, and um, you can follow me at Pancake for Table on Twitter and Instagram. And you can uh, catch me on the other podcast, uh, Friday Night Movie, that I do with my sisters. Which probably we could do it. We probably could do an all a whole REM episode just from our own REM stories. And so maybe that'll happen one day. <laughs> I think <laughs> you should do that. I think I've maybe exhausted the REM my right to talk about REM in a recorded fashion at this point. <laughs> Um, and I think rate us. I guess if you're listening, there are people listening. I've verified it. I've seen the stats. If you're listening, we'd love a rating on iTunes. That's helpful. Or maybe even a review. So yeah, go, go for it. We appreciate. Or is there it. any episodes you'd like us to talk about? Oh yeah, exactly. Are there a particular? And if you have any, yes, we haven't talked about. <laughs> yes, please send us them. <laughs> please send us them. Exactly. Links files whatever especially the Millie Vanilli one that's a big one yes I, I really I need to see this. the Millie Vanilli one the meatloaf one and the Billy Joel one are three that I can't find that I really want 
<sighs> They've got to be out there somewhere. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about the success, heartbreak, passion, fame, fortune, and glory of REM. Thank you, Ash. No problem. Thanks for having me. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.